And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll begin reading in verse 1, the Bible says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving, an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with great contentment is great gain. For, he brought not, for we brought nothing new into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called, and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on, uncertain, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, Thus, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Uh, we could be here all day. We could be here all day. We're not going to be here all day. Well, some of us are going to be here all day but not in chapter 6 here. The theme of 1 Timothy. Why did the Apostle Paul write this letter? He wrote it to Timothy so that Timothy would be equipped to lead the church at Ephesus in Paul's absence. So, And in order to effectively lead the Ephesian church, Timothy was going to have to be centered on the gospel. In order for the Ephesian church to be an effective church for the Lord, it had to be centered on the gospel. And in order for us to be effective as Christians and to be effective as a church, we have to be centered on the gospel. And how do we know if we are centered on the gospel? How do we know that we are hitting the mark? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says, 
the aim of our charge, our goal, our mission, our vision. I'm working on new mission and vision statements, by the way. Our aim, our goal, our mission, what are we after here? It's a love that flows from a pure heart, a good conscience, mm -hmm. and a sincere faith. Mm -hmm. We want love. And where does that love come from? It flows from a pure heart, a heart that has been cleansed, a heart that has a love for others, a heart that has the right motivations, that doesn't have ulterior motives. A good conscience, this is one that is in good standing with God and a sincere faith. This is one that truly believes. And, you know, I was talking and I've got friends and acquaintances and colleagues and associates and the subject of Christianity, the subject of church comes up from time to time. The subject of televangelists and TV preachers comes up from time to time and, and, and those out in the community. And one individual made the statement. She said that there's a difference between those who truly believe and those who are just doing this. There's a difference, she goes, and I can, and she's, she's not a, an avid churchgoer. She does not exhibit the lifestyle of one who is, a, who is a, an avid follower of the Lord or Scripture. I'm not saying she's not saved. I'm just saying that she's, she's not in her Bible every day. She's not in church every Sunday, okay? I'm not, so I'm not trying to judge her. I'm just telling her. I'm just telling you. You know, she lives a life that's common to people of the world. That's all I'm telling you. And she said... She notices people who truly believe in the Lord as their Savior and those who are going through the motions, those who have just gone to church and just go to church because that's what they do. And she, goes, and she can tell the difference between someone who's on TV preaching the gospel because they're trying to reach people with salvation and those who are trying to build an organization and make a living off of it. And now this is not someone who proclaims to have a lot of spiritual discernment. The world notices the difference. Yeah. So this love that flows from this pure heart, this good conscience, this sincere faith, where does it come from? It comes from the gospel. Amen. If we're going to hit the target, we've got to be gospel-centered. If we're going to have that love that flows, we've got to be gospel-centered. And so how we tell whether or not we're gospel-centered is whether or not we have that love that flows. Amen. And this is going to come out in the scriptures this morning because we're going to see some hallmarks of what happens when we're not gospel-centered. We're going to see some hallmarks of what happens when the church has drifted from the gospel. And when we have leaders and teachers who are actually anti-gospel, we're going to look at this. You take the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins in accordance with Scripture, our redemption, the, the Lord's sacrifice on the cross, the grace of the Lord, the love of the Lord, God's good will toward us. You divorce that from 1 Timothy and you have a very legalistic book. You take the gospel out of the picture and ignore the gospel. Just ignore the gospel. Pretend it doesn't exist. And in chapter 2, you're told that you have to pray for the president, even if he's doing some very bad things in the office. you still got to like him. And that's hard to do. Yeah. That's hard to do. This, I, I don't want to talk politics. I don't want to be on politics on Facebook. I don't want to deal with it. But it's getting really hard to, to, stay, to abstain from politics. I fear the politics will hinder my ability to reach people with the gospel. But it's getting really hard to shut up. And it's getting really hard to pray for the... But listen, if I'm gospel-centered, if I'm gospel-centered, I want that president to be saved. Yes. I want that president to do godly things. I've got to pray for him. You read 1 Timothy chapter 2 and you forget the gospel exists and you come up with a rule that women aren't even allowed to speak in church. You're not allowed to sing in church. You're not allowed to lead prayer in church. You're not allowed to do anything in church. That's not what that passage is saying. You plug the gospel into that 
and it takes on a whole new meaning. Mm -hmm. Chapter 3. The pastor's kids misbehave in church, you fire him. Because he's not ruling his household well, so he's not qualified to be a pastor anymore. A lot of pastors fear this, and so they're really hard on their kids. And I mean, like, you know, the kid can do anything outside of church, but don't you dare mess up in church. All right, we're going to go visit another church today. We're going to go preach in view of a call at this church over here. If you kids will manage to not get in trouble the entire day at church, I'll take you to McDonald's afterwards. And then this, this develops a destructive feeling between father and children. And it's, but but it's, it comes from this idea that we've divorced the gospel from the scriptures. Chapter 4, chapter 5, I mean, you come up with some pretty legalistic things to take the gospel out of the picture. We've got to keep the gospel in the picture. We've got to tie this all into the gospel. So chapter 6, here we are. We're going to look at three things. The relationship between servants and masters. This should be gospel-centered. We're going to address false teachers, their motivations, and how this happens. And then we're going to circle around to being content. We're going to find some contentment. We're going to find some reasons to praise and to worship this morning. I feel down this morning. I get the feeling y'all feel down. Sometimes you're going through service and you're singing and you're like, it's off today. Well, we're brokenhearted. But we're going to get back to the gospel. We're going to find our contentment there. Servants and masters. Let's start there. In verses 1 through 2, the Bible says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The servants being addressed here are servants who are in servitude because they're paying off a debt. And so that's, that's what we're going to look at. We're, not gonna, we're, we're, that's, we're looking at those who are having to work to pay off a debt. All right, now... Some of y'all work. Some of y'all have jobs. Some of you are in business for yourselves. Why do you get up and you go to work every morning? You have a mortgage payment. That's why you do it. You have a car payment. There's another debt. You know, I mean, it's like I was asking a job interview. If you didn't have to worry about money, what would you do? What would your life be like if you didn't have to worry about money? I said, I would, I would be pastoring my church, visiting my church members, writing books about the Bible, and that's, that would be my life. If I could choose anything I wanted to do without having to you know, worry about making the mortgage payment, that's what I would do. It was a wrong answer, by the way. Um, I didn't get that job. Uh, but, but, but that's what I would do. I mean, that's what my life would be like. But no, I, I, don't, I, have, I have a mortgage payment. I have a car payment. I'm about to have a student loan payment. Jessica's got a student loan payment. We have some other assorted debts that have come along or along the way. And then, you know, we, have, we need food. And so that's debt. So what do I do? I wake up in the morning. I go to work every day. And Jessica wakes up in the morning, she goes to work every day. And so we're working in order to pay off a debt. So you know what? That makes us servants. There's nothing degrading about that. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Don't, don't drop your head over that. We're doing what people of all times have always done. We wake up and we work to provide for ourselves and our family. And that's a godly thing. That's a godly thing. And so when we're looking at this passage in these first few verses of chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is addressing what this looks like when you're a believer. What this looks like when you're gospel-centered, all right? And so we honor those who employ us. If you're self-employed, it's the person you sold the job to. If you are employed, it's the person who hired you, who put you to work. We regard our masters, our employers, our customers worthy of all honor. Worthy of all honor. And why do we do this? It's because we love God. 
And we want God to be honored. And we want our employers and those that we do business with and those that we do business for, we want them to see God for who he truly is and come to that knowledge of the truth. We want the best for them. We want the best for everybody involved. And so we honor, for lack of a better term, and to harmonize my language with the Bible's language, we harmonize, to harmonize that language, we honor our masters. You know, my current employer hired me when he didn't have an opening. I went to him and I said, I want to learn how to sell life insurance. I need practice before I open my own agency. What did I tell him? I want to use you to learn how to do this so one day I can compete against you. That's what I told him. He says, I don't really have an opening. Let me see what I can do. A week later, he has a job offer for me. Part-time, which eventually turned full-time. But And that was the premise. I'm coming to work for you for a short time. One day I'm going to strike out on my own. And he opened the doors for me. How should I work for him? What should be my attitude working for him? What should be my desire for his business and his agency? You see what I'm saying? I should want to honor that. People who do business with us, if you're self-employed and you're selling a service, people who purchase your service, they're taking a chance on you. People who give you a job, they say you're hired. When can you start? They're taking a chance on you. Don't make them regret it. And why would you not and why would that be the case? Because you are a representative of Christ. And if you love your Lord, you'll want him to be well represented. My employer loves the company he represents. And even though the company may have warts on the internal side, you know, in dealing with how different levels of corporate work with each other, there are things to complain about working there. He won't do it because he cares about how the company is perceived. Now, if he can have that kind of affection for a company, what kind of affection should we have for our Lord? And so, for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of this love that flows from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith, when we're serving, we need to serve in a way that honors those whom we serve. That's how Paul opens up this chapter. And when our boss is a brother in Christ, that even makes it more important. Because now we're not just serving somebody in a transactional sense. We're hoping to, to honor God in the process. But now we've got somebody we love that we're serving. You know, you do things better for your family, your loved ones, than you do for people you don't really know. It should be the same when you're, when you're working. And you're working for a believer. You're working for a brother or sister in Christ. Serve them well. That's one of the hallmarks of a gospel-centered life. Secondly, let's address these false teachers and their motives. In verses 3 through 4, the Bible says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now, what doctrine does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what teacher does not agree 
with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what you're tempted to do is you're tempted to go through the list of doctrines and try to figure out what agrees with Jesus, what doesn't agree with Jesus. But there's a simple formula to figuring out what agrees with Jesus, what does not agree with Jesus. What agrees with the sound words of the, our Lord and what does not agree with the sound words of our Lord. And the simple formula is any doctrine, any teaching that distracts from the gospel does not agree with the sound words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Any doctrine that denigrates the gospel, that tells you that the gospel is an entry-level doctrine, that gets you in the door, but you've got to understand all these other things to truly be one of the top tier. That is a doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Any doctrine that shifts the focus from others and from Christ to yourself is a doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If my doctrine is telling you that you have got to figure out a way to step it up and live better, that is a doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because what I have done when I teach you that is I have shifted your focus from the Lord, His grace, His gospel, His salvation to yourself and what you have to do. That's what, the, that's what the Pharisees and the Judaizers were doing to the churches of Galatia. They were shifting the focus from the gospel onto the individual. And what must I do? What more must I do? What's the next step that I have to take? And when you get into that, Brother Jim's graphic he put on the screen about the, the, the blob, it kind of hides and obscures the gospel. That point was made this morning. And when we're, when we're arguing and we're teaching and we're trying to separate ourselves from the rest of the world and the rest of the Christianity by saying we believe this, we believe that, and we've got like 80,000 things that we believe that separate us from everybody else, what are we not talking about? We're not talking about the gospel. And those who promote such doctrines. I um, had a friend that posted on Facebook this week. He was mentioning a preacher that every week posted and preached about contemporary worship and how true theological depth and true spiritual worship can only come from the traditional hymns and not modern worship. And the irony is, at one point, our traditional hymns were modern worship. But, like, you can't get there with modern worship. You have to stick with the old hymns. And that there's this argument going on, and I mentioned... And, and, and our friends in this group, we didn't engage whether or not he was right or not. We engaged what a tragic situation this was. Because when your main concern and your thought process, your ministry, if you've got a ministry or, or whatever is hymns versus praise choruses, chairs versus pews, you've, you're off the gospel. You've missed and those who promote those things, those who that's what they want to talk about, those who that, that's going to be the message they take to the nations, the Bible tells us they're puffed up. What, what, what's that mean? They're puffed up. Prideful. Arrogant. And they don't understand anything. The guy who wants to talk to you about whether you're using a King James or an ESV, and by the way, this goes on both sides. Your modern translation people, some of them will get on an absolute crusade against the King James Version, and your King James Version will get on an absolute crusade against the modern version. Same thing happens with the worship styles, hymns versus uh, uh, modern worship. 
a lot of your modern worship people are going on a crusade against the hymns. When, when that's the conversation, we understand nothing. We've missed the point of what this is all about. We don't have any, uh, we don't have any clue what the Bible is actually teaching us when that's where we are. Verses 4 through 5 says, He, talking about the guy that promotes these doctrines that are distracting from the gospel, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among many people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now I'm going to, I'm going to stick with the, the, the worship style. I'm not trying to change worship styles. I'm not trying to preach about this. But this is a good example to go with on this particular topic. All right, so traditional worship, the old hymns versus modern worship. I had, a, I had a preacher come up to me one day and he said, Brother Leland, do you, do you believe in traditional worship or do you believe in modern worship? And I gave him my answer. I believe in worship that actually lifts up praises to, the, to God. He goes, yeah, but what about a praise band? I'm like, well, I mean, instrumentation is not spelled out in Scripture. Actually, it is. Praise him with a psaltery, praise him with a harp. We don't have those. We have pianos and uh, uh, the bells, which I keep calling a xylophone because that's what they called it when I was in school, it seems like. And some churches have guitars. Uh, Calvary Baptist Church in Henderson has a wind ensemble. That's pretty cool. Uh, they, have, they, they, have a, they have a grand piano, a wind ensemble, guitars, and a drum set. And the preacher goes, what about the drums? Do you believe in drums in the worship? I'm like, well, somebody's got to keep time. You may go, but Brother Leland, drums were only an instrument of war in Bible times. Now, he, he initiated this. And what he wants me to understand is that drums in worship are ungodly because that's a wartime instrument in Bible times. This is a guy, and I've got other, I could, I could point out other things this guy did, this is a guy that had an unhealthy obsession with wanting to have debates like this. And that's what the scripture says. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. You ever worry about how you say something because you're afraid it'll be misinterpreted? Quarrels about words. Brother Leland said that must mean, you know, we're going off on it. No. When you're, people, this is one that gets me. Hey, my church is having service this Sunday. Your church you mean the Lord's church in which you attend. That's an unhealthy fascination with quarrels about words. Like quarrels about words. You know it's God's church. I know it's God's church. I know that you know it's God's church. Why are we going to quarrel about that? Correct people over little things like that. Right? That's, an un that's unhealthy. That's a mark of one of these false teachers. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy or quarrels about words, which produce envy. What's this de developing? Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Evil suspicions. There's compromisers among us, brethren. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And do you know why so many Christians fall into this? They've been deprived of the truth. They haven't had the gospel ingrained in them. They haven't been drilled on what the gospel is and what it means. That's why we keep coming back to it every Sunday. That's why I bring it up to you every Sunday. That's why every time I go online, I do something online. The gospel is in there. Sometimes I preface the, what I'm doing with the gospel. Why? Because if you're deprived of that knowledge of what the gospel is, you fall into this stuff. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. These false teachers that do this, what are they doing? They're going after gain. 
They want to gain finances. They want to gain notoriety. They want to, they want to gain the praise. They, it's about them. It's about themselves. And you know this when you see how they talk about themselves. And when they talk about whether or not they feel like they've been properly honored, they've been properly cared for, they've been properly supported. Gospel-centered teachers are outwardly focused. False teachers are self-focused. And they teach their followers to be self-focused. But gospel-centered teachers are concerned with the growing faith of their students. And they wish the best for everyone. Being gospel-centered means that those who would stir up these divisions, we reject that. We reject it. Can a homosexual be saved? Can the Lord cleanse a homosexual of his or her sin, transform them into the person that he intended on them being and welcoming them into his kingdom with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Is this a possibility? I had a man tell me that God gave them over to a reprobate mind in Romans chapter 1, therefore they can never be saved. Romans chapter 1 does not say that, the, that God gave them over to a reprobate mind so that they can never be saved. What the Bible says is God gave them over to a reprobate mind and so their lifestyles got really bad after that. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when the Apostle Paul calls out these sins, those who, those who have abused themselves and have engaged in these homosexual acts, what does the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? He says, they won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. But what does he also say? He also says, as such were some of you. Some of the very people Paul was talking to in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 had engaged in the very activities that were indicative of someone who had a reprobate mind, which means that people with reprobate minds in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 have been saved. Yeah. But we want to argue about, well, that's, is that possible or not? If you think it's impossible for God to save anybody, you've missed the gospel. That's right. Now, there is something to be said about likelihood. But if we're focusing and we're obsessed with likelihood, guess what? We've also missed the gospel. Mm -hmm. Let's be content in the gospel. Verses 6 and 7. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. False teachers imagine that godliness and this whole religious thing is a means by which you can obtain gain. If I'm good enough, I'll be more blessed than you in the kingdom of heaven. If I'm good enough, good things will happen to me in this world. If I'm good enough, then people will send me a check. They do it for the profit. But the scripture teaches that godliness with contentment is great gain because that gain is eternal. We brought nothing into this world with us. When I was born, I had nothing. I had no assets. I had no liabilities. My balance sheet was zero and zero. It was balanced. I had nothing. What do I have now? I'm not going to tell you. But I'll tell you it's more than nothing, which means that everything I've got is profit. It's profit. And the Lord has blessed us. The Lord has blessed us with salvation. The Lord has blessed us with the ability to fellowship together and come together and be a part of this church family. The Lord has blessed us with food and clothing. Mine is not as formal as many. 
but we even, we've learned to enjoy the goodness of comfortable clothing while we gather together and worship the Lord, haven't we? Yes. We learned the blessing of simple pleasures. With that, we'll be content. Discontentment is not only selfish and thus counter to the gospel, but it's destructive. Verses 9 and 10 say, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, and notice it's the love of money, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many, many pains. It's the love of money. Not the need to earn money, but the love of money. What drives you? What motivates you? Why do your feet hit the floor in the morning? Pursuing wealth, wanting to be rich, is a never-ending venture. Because nobody wakes up and says, I'm rich. Nobody is motivated by money. No. But, you know, I think they asked, was it Rockefeller they asked, how much money is enough? He goes, just a little more. All right, richest man in the world at the time. I mean, no matter how much you have in the bank, you still need more. And the reason you do is because you know it can be fleeting. You know it can be fleeting. You know something can go bad and you can lose it. So you need a little bit more to give you a little bit more cushion to make sure that you are, and, and if you're motivated by riches, it's never enough. You'll never have enough. You'll never cross the finish line. However, wealth in and of itself is not a bad thing. And if you have wealth, you can use that to bless others. And in verses 17 through 19, the Apostle Paul talks about how you can use that for the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean you have to give it all away. What it means is you have a different perspective. I have wealth, therefore I'm able to do this. Let me tell you something. Entrepreneurs, you give an entrepreneur a million dollars, he's not going to you know, skip home with his million dollars and be happy and go buy things. You give an entrepreneur a million dollars, he's going to take that million dollars, he's going to leverage and start a new enterprise that's going to make another million dollars. Why don't we think about that with, uh, with the Lord's work? with the spread of the gospel. You see what I'm saying? Be entrepreneurial in that regard. But I don't want to get off too far into that. Being gospel-centered means you have the right perspective of money and, and its function and how it works. And so as the Apostle Paul is closing out his letter to Timothy, as he's instructing Timothy, giving Timothy everything he needs to know in order to lead the Ephesian church, he gives them some final instructions. In verses 11 through 12, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee the desire for wealth. Flee the desire for prestige. Flee the desire to be self-centered. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue steadfastness. Pursue gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Flee from pride. Flee from discontentment and the desire for, wit for riches. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And fight the good fight of the faith. What does that mean? What's the good fight of the faith? The good fight of the faith is not trying to get through a day without saying a cuss word. The good fight of the faith is the fight to stay gospel-centered. Because every force in your life is trying to pull you away from that. Fight the good fight to stay gospel-centered yes. and to teach that gospel to others. Amen. This has been my struggle. 
over the surrendered to the ministry in 04 pastored my first church in 06 came out here to start this church in 08 it's been my struggle to learn this concept it has been a long journey to learn this concept I don't want y'all to have to do that that long I want y'all to be able to learn faster than I learned that's why I tell the kids don't do what I did but dad you turned out okay yes but I had to go through a lot of pain to get to where I'm at I'm trying to help you take the shortcut the express lane I don't want us to get bogged down in all these things that distract and divide us. These things that make us question ourselves and each other. And who's really with us and who isn't. If they're not really with us, they're not going to stay long. Because the Bible says they went out from us because they were not of us. They were not one of us. It says that in the book of 1 John. I want us to be who God wants us to be. And what's important to God is our salvation, redemption, and transformation. And and, 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 and that's that's God. That's his focus, the creator of the universe. He can be focused on anything. What's he focused on? He's focused on us. That's love. He's focused on our transformation. I want us to be Christians in a church who understand just how well they have been blessed in the gospel, just what God has redeemed us from, where he has transformed us from. And I want us to desire to see, I want us to desire to see that change and that transformation in others. Not just because the Bible says, go ye therefore and teach, but because we love the others who are around us. When I got, when I got COVID, I was given treatment. The treatment was effective. When friends of mine came down with COVID, I told them about the treatment because a lot of doctors just say, I'll just get some water and some Tylenol and rest it off. I'm like, no, no, there's a doctor at Hendrick One Source and Early who will pump you full of every drug he can to cure you of that disease. There's a doctor at the clinic who will treat your COVID and save your life. He's treated, he told me he treated more than 400 cases, hasn't lost a patient yet. There is a doctor who will treat your symptoms, and will help you overcome this disease. And we have a disease going through this world called sin. And we shouldn't tell people about Jesus because the Bible tells us about Jesus. We shouldn't witness because the preacher preached on witnesses. We need to preach on Jesus and the gospel and tell others about the gospel because we are as concerned about them as I am about those around me I know who get COVID. And instead of trying to tell people where they can go get COVID treatments or where the next best hamburger is, we need to tell people that there is a man who is God, who came down in the form of man, went to the cross to pay for our sin, and went and he see at the right hand of the throne of God where he ever lives to make intercession for us. There is a Lord, a Savior, a Redeemer. And you can be delivered if you just trust him. That's what I want us to be about. And the people that we minister to, their lives will not be perfect. I say they may not be perfect. They're not going to be perfect. Their lives are going to be messy. It's going to be crazy. There's going to be things going on in there that we're not going to be comfortable with. And there are going to be some things going on in people's lives that the preachers that we grew up under said that people with that would bust hell wide open. But we need to minister to them 
We need to walk with them through that transformational process. And we may never see them reach what we would consider completion in this lifetime. Yes. But when God calls them home, he will call them home being at peace with him. That is what we want to see. Yes. Amen. And we'll put up with the other stuff along the way. <laughs>